And this morning we continue our series looking at the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews in a series we've entitled The Hall of Faith. Again, as we depict this particular chapter as individuals that God has given us to be examples of what it means to interact with God on the basis of faith. And each individual that has been brought to our attention by the Spirit, as the writer of Hebrews was writing to encourage Jewish Christians who had become the object of great persecution, were considering turning their backs on Christ, returning to Judaism, the writer of Hebrews wanted to encourage them by listing off these different individuals that were faced with great opposition and sometimes perilous uh, circumstances, and yet their, their faith carried them through the time in which they were experiencing and allowed God to take them forward with him rather than, than them retreating and going back to the life previous. And we've made our way through the hall of faith all the way to verse 23, where we pick it up today and we come to our next inductee into the hall of faith, which is the individual Moses. Now, Moses is spoken of greatly in the book of Hebrews. Moses was the individual that gave the Jewish person their personal and national, ethnic, and religious identity through the covenant in which he brought to the children of Israel down from Mount Sinai to the people to allow them to be God's people governed by, of course, the Ten Commandments. The writer of Hebrews specifies very quickly within the book that Jesus Christ was superior to Moses, allowing the Jewish person to know that the covenant in which he instilled, the new covenant, was greater than the one that Moses instilled, which was the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of the law. And as a result, the Jewish people were now to focus upon the teachings of Jesus Christ being the Messiah in whom they've anticipated and wondering and watching the work in which he did. They could now with confidence embrace the covenant in which he brought between man and God. But still Moses was a great example of faith before the people. And so Moses is now given to us as the next inductee to the hall of faith. And as a result, we begin not with the faith of Moses, but with the faith of his parents, showing and demonstrating that the culture in which his parents cultivated within the home had an impact upon his life. And at three months old, we find that Moses already is the object and the direction of the faith in which the parents uh, exercised. We see that it is the parents here at this point, Amram and Jochebeth, who hid Moses. Why did they have to hide Moses? When the children of Israel came into the land of Egypt, they were about 78 in number. Of course, Joseph was there, and he was now the second in command under the Pharaoh who appreciated the insight that Joseph gave him to the dream in which he had about the seven years of prosperity and the seven years of famine that were about to come upon the whole land. When Jacob came with the children of Israel, 
There's just a handful of them. And being relatives of Joseph, the Pharaoh welcomed them into Egypt and gave them an area of the land called Goshen. But as the children of Israel began to multiply, and they multiplied greatly in the land, the Pharaoh, who was uh, uh, friendly to them, died. And another Pharaoh came to power who didn't have the same affection towards the children of Israel as the first Pharaoh did. And as a result, with the uh, expansion of the population, and we're talking significant populational growth, from 78 people over the course of 400 years, it's estimated that between 2 to 4 million left the nation of Egypt to find the promised land in which God promised to them. The people were concerned. The Egyptian people were concerned. The Pharaoh were concerned that if they were to rebel from their current status of slave there in Egypt, for of course the Jewish people built many of the monuments, especially the city of Ramsey, and as a result, the Pharaoh started becoming concerned with the mere numeral uh, quantity of them. And so he passed an edict that all male children should be slaughtered right after birth. Yeah. And as a result, uh, the midwives of the Jewish people actually took it upon themselves to disobey the edict of Pharaoh. And as a result, the Israel kept growing in population. But it is this edict that the parents of Moses are faced with. It is this edict that they then uh, stand up to by faith and hide their son Moses for three months until they can hide him no more. And then, they, of course, the, uh, the daughter of, or the sister of Moses brings him down to the River Nile, and you know, places him in a basket and so forth. And, and um, of course, Pharaoh's daughter is the one who retrieves the basket from the River Nile, and you know the story. However, though, the Holy Spirit wants us to see in verse 23, if you'll turn there with me, It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. The faith exercise is undoubtedly that of his parents. Grammatically, it is shown that way in the Greek. Moses at this point was helpless. He was just an infant, of course. He was born, and when he was hidden for those three months by his parents, and the reason they hid hid him was because they saw that the child was beautiful, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And secondly, they were not afraid of the king's edict, the edict that we just mentioned. The writer of Hebrews is stating to all of us that this faith exercised was a faith like the faith previously illustrated for us by the other inductees that allowed the individual to look past their circumstances at the moment, look long-term, and make decisions in the moment that may be very uh, precarious at this particular time, but in the long run will satisfy the plan and purposes of God. By hiding this child in the manner in which they did, if they were to have been caught, they would have been immediately executed for their disobedience to Pharaoh's edict. There was no appeals process. There was no judicial system in which they could plead their case to. 
It was simply a matter of guilt or innocence, and if guilt is found, immediate execution. So this faith allowed them to rise above the personal position of fear in which would grip their hearts knowing that they are disobeying the rule of Pharaoh. And secondly, they did so because of a purpose. They saw that there was something special about the child Moses, and they wanted to allow God to let Moses reach the full potential in which God had set before him within the plan and purpose for his life. This faith allowed the parents to do what they did. And there's so much, I believe, that we can learn from this this morning as we walk through it together. As we come to this particular place, let us be reminded of the circumstances. Again, let us go back into the Old Testament, if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as we find for ourselves this moment in which the writer of Hebrews is bringing to our attention. In chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, verses 1 through 3, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that, the, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with butamen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the riverbank. We as parents often are confronted with decisions we need to make on the basis of our children that hold their well-being within our hands. These decisions are key crucial to the overall development and longevity and the uh, growth and development of our children. We as parents undoubtedly could read such a passage and the very first conclusion we come to is that these people, these individuals would sacrifice in such a way they would be willing to face the fear of the disobedience to the edict simply because they love their child and they want their child to live and to persevere through the trials and troubles and tribulations that they are currently facing. For what parent would not try to rescue their child from death? This week was a stunning week in our world. Alfie Evans should (laughs) terrify us at what has happened there in the United Kingdom. The child, 23 months old, fell into a vegetative state that the doctors there at the hospital in in Liverpool could not identify. But because of the current state of the child, they deemed that the child should no longer be kept on life support. Though they never identified what was wrong with the child, they had no idea if the child could be revived in any way, shape, or form, they deemed that the child should simply be left to die. Deeming that the child was terminal, 
even though they still did not identify the root cause of the state in which the child was in. The parents then, of course, being parents, loving parents of their child that they had been with for 23 months, went immediately to try to cease the child from being pulled off of life support, and the courts struck it down there in the United Kingdom. The child was then taken off the life support system and lived several days further. But to hasten the death of the child, the doctors would not allow the child oxygen or water until the fourth day. This is horrific. They appealed to the Pope. Italy said that they would take the child, set the child up in a Vatican hospital. They had a helicopter waiting to transport the child there in England if the English government would allow it, the child to be moved. And the, the Italian people and, and the Pope says, we'll take care of this. Don't let the child die. We'll take care of it. All you have to do is release the child. England would not release the child. Yeah, this is unheard of. No cost to the English people, none whatsoever. The child then died. After the child died, (laughs) the United Kingdom stated that they were monitoring the social media to make sure the facts were presented carefully. And anything that didn't agree with their line, they edited, censored. When we see an individual standing up for socialism, we need to seriously ask that individual if they've ever experienced socialism. Do you understand what socialism is? Do you understand the role of the government in the position or in the placement of socialism over a society? When you talk about socialized medicine, do you realize that you relinquish your control to health care at certain points in your life when the state deems it necessary? I tell you that the American people should be studying this case, praying for those parents, and making sure this never happens in our country whatsoever. But it is happening. Because as Americans age, they need more and more attention. They need more and more health care. The insurance companies don't want to pay for it anymore, and so... They are considering death indignity as Canada passed their laws, allowing individuals to end their life when they want to end their life by uh, physicians-assisted suicide. The repercussions, the ramifications, the consequences of such decisions are enormous, okay? Again, when we give the state that type of control over the individual... When we look at society through the lens of evolution rather than through the lens of creation, we view life in a much different light, don't we? Now, think if you were those parents of little Alfie, 23 months old. How hard would you fight to save his life? They fought. They did everything they could. Above board, they tried to work the system and so forth, and the system worked against them in every turn of the law. 
And so it would be easy to communicate and to look at this and say, well, they simply hid the child to spare his life because they loved the child. But the text gives us more. Undoubtedly, that was a large portion of their motivation. The perseverance of a child in the hands of a mother. You know, the most violent individual you'll ever find is a mother who feels their child is in some type of distress. I wouldn't want to go there. But there was more to this story. For they saw something within the child. They saw that the child was beautiful. And you say, well, what's so surprising about that? Everyone thinks their newborn child is the best-looking child that has ever been granted to a parent to raise. And they show you the picture. And it's just moments after they've been born. And they're all, you know, uh, they're all crunched up and they're all wrinkly and they're pink or red or purple. And they're like, oh, the beautiful kid. And you're like, where? You know, don't do that as a pastor, by the way. It's frowned upon greatly. Just nod your head. Yes. Great. Wonderful. Awesome. Uh, But the word beautiful there means much more than just simply a beautiful face, an adorable gaze, uh, pretty eyes. It means much, much more than that in the Greek and the Hebrew. One wrote, he said, it is really the faith of his parents at this point and not that of Moses himself that is in view when we, when we look at this text. As they looked on their baby, they saw he was beautiful. But it was more than just physical beauty, he states. They saw that the child uh, had a destiny in the hands of God, one whom had, God had marked out for a special work. Their faith that God's purposes would be worked out gave them the courage to defy the king's command and to hide the child for three months. This word beautiful, it means that there was something about the child that allowed the individuals to see and to know that God's hand was upon the child. The historian Josephus writes that it was Aram, uh, his father, who was approached at night by God, and God told him that Moses would be something special. That's an extra biblical uh, insight. We have no biblical uh, evidence for that, so we take that with a grain of salt. But something that they viewed here, from the very text in Exodus, which is somewhat skewed, can anybody tell me that why the Exodus text may be somewhat skewed because it said that when the child was born, they saw that he was a fine child. Why would that seem a little weird to you? Because Moses wrote it. So when I was born, my parents saw in me immediately that I was a fine child. But we know that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit superseded that. And he was not bragging on himself. He is simply stating a fact. And the word fine there means exceptional in God's eyes. That's the Hebrew word. The Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek in a text called the Subtuagint. 
The Septuagint text, the Greek text of the Old Testament, is what is often quoted in the New Testament by the New Testament writers. And therefore, this word beautiful comes out of this word fine, but it has a much more uh, expansive definition than just mere physical beauty. There was something about this child that was special. In fact, even when Stephen in Acts 7 was giving an account of the Jewish history, talked about Moses and when he was born and said he was a beautiful child in the sight of God. Ken Weiss, the great linguist, stated this, that he saw within it that it could be rendered in the English he was comely when it was with respect to God. That is, God had his hand upon Moses and apparently his parents realized it. So their reasoning was not only their love for their child, but they saw something within their child that moved them by faith to hide their child for three months, realizing that one day God may want to use this child in an exceptional way. And that's the title of my message, By Faith They Saw Potential. The parents saw in this child that there was something greater going on than just merely a son for them to parent and to raise. God's hand was upon that child. And so they felt it of necessity to hide that child for three months as long as they could before finally having to relinquish that control. And secondly, it says that not only was he beautiful, but he, they also were not afraid. They were fearless in the wake or in the face of great opposition. As one wrote about the history at that time, they said failure to obey the law most likely meant death to the lawbreaker. The parents risked their lives in disobeying the law. But note that this verse says they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They trusted God to preserve the child and they cast their own lives upon God's care. They knew they had to risk their lives in order to save their son and the promised seed and of the land of God. Big picture was executed upon in this one moment of deciding to disobey the governing uh, forces to hide the child for three months. And they did so without fear, meaning their faith overcame their fear. They understood that God was bigger than their own personal lives, even if they needed to relinquish those lives for the sake of saving their son. And for three months, by faith, they hid their son because he was beautiful and because they did not fear the king's edict. There may come a time when we as believers in Jesus Christ are faced with the dilemma of obeying the governing community or resisting their commands or laws. That line is drawn when it comes to the things of God. When the government begins to uh, dictate what we can and cannot do within our faith, we then need to decide when it is appropriate to resist that edict or that command or law 
full welling, full well, full welling, full well understanding that we will certainly have to face the consequences in doing so, but we cannot obey and still at the same time honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For example, we see numerous occasions in the Old Testament where idols were raised up. And the king's edicts required everyone to worship those idols, and specifically in Daniel's book. And they resisted in doing so, even though they knew they were going to have to face the consequences, which, which was death, being thrown into the fiery furnace. And you know what happened there. They walked around in there. One met them in there and preserved them through it all. But they were fully willing to reap the consequences of their action, but they were not going to deny their Lord and Savior, their God, by worshiping idols and deities who were not deities at all. When it came to the midwives, they had the choice of sparing the children or executing the children. They chose to spare the children, fully fully comprehending that they would one day maybe have to suffer for that disobedience. We may be found in the same position. We, at, for all purposes, should look to obey the government uh, in, in every way that we possibly can. But there may come a time in which that crosses the line, and therefore we must then resist full welling. Full, <laughs> I love that word, welling. Full well knowing that it may cause consequences, and even prison, my own life, etc. But that being said, I want to look at the other point with you this morning, and specifically speak to you who are parents today. The raising of our children is one of the greatest responsibility that God can give us here on this earth. It is certainly one of the most difficult it is certainly one of the most trying. It is certainly one that's going to push us to the edge of our personal limitations. But as Christians, we understand that it's key crucial that we raise our children as the Lord would have us to raise them. And certainly when we are placed in that position of being parents as believers in Jesus Christ, often, you know, the first feeling that we have is that we are overwhelmed by our inadequacies. I still remember holding Autumn when she was first born, thinking to myself, the Lord must have made a mistake. I don't even know how to use, you know, diapers. I thanked and prayed the Lord, I thanked the Lord for the guy who invented Velcro. Otherwise, my daughter would have been holy in more ways than one. I was so child-impaired as an individual when I had my daughter, that I realized how ill-equipped I was to become a parent. Unfortunately, today, we have so many voices screaming at us on how to raise our children that we often get lost in the myriad of uh, opinions and ideas and philosophies that are out there, of course, that are accessible all through the internet today. When my wife and I had a child, we immediately realized that it was our responsibility to make decisions for that child that would affect them, affect her for her entire life, possibly. 
And so we really went to the only thing that we could to help us through the process. And you know what that was? Prayer. Prayer, prayer, and prayer some more. Resting solely on the fact that we're God says, you know, if you ask me for wisdom, I'll give it to you liberally. I'm like, Lord, we need it. Because we don't have the foresight that you do. And as God started taking my wife and I through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we began to profile an individual raising a child up in the Lord. And as we began to work through this, we saw that first and foremost, we wanted to do all that we could to lead our child to a personal relationship with Christ herself. She wasn't going to inherit that faith from me. There was nothing that I could do to get her saved. I could just be the witness that God called me to be. I could be the influence that God would want me to be. I could be the man of God that I should be. I should be the husband that God required me to be, and so forth. And Dina looked at it from the same perspective. So every night we would pray next to her crib, Lord, open her eyes, open her heart, let her love you even more than Dina and I do today. We prayed that earnestly, day after day, day after day, after day, after day. And then one day, as a little girl... We were reading the story of you know, Jesus. We would read to her every night from her books, and we would do some fun books, and then we would do the, the Bible together. And she had this book and had all the pictures that you know, would take her through the gospel, and we read it to her every night. And as she grew, she got very accustomed to it, and she loved when I did all the voices. I did the God voice. I did the Miriam voice. I did all the voices for her. And each and every night, she'd get the gospel before she went to bed, and then we would pray for her. And then one day, when she got a little bit older, she said, I want to make sure that I am a Christian, and she gave her life to Christ. Now, it doesn't end there. This is the second portion. This is the portion that speaks from our text today. My job then was to help disciple her in her newfound faith in Jesus Christ, helping her to fall in love with Jesus and his word and so forth. Again, being the example that God has called me to be. Dina, the example that she was called to be, and we didn't do it perfect, please, guys. We failed many, many a times, and it was only by God's grace that we proceeded. But we began to disciple her. And in the discipleship process, we began to pray thinking, Lord, Based upon this text, now that she's one of yours, you have a place for her in your body. One day, in some way, you will want to use her for your glory somewhere within the body of Christ. Help us to prepare her for that at this time. Now, when she's very young, you have no idea what that is. But God does, doesn't he? So you appeal to that foresight. And you say, Lord, help me make decisions that would accompany or equip her to fulfill the ministry in which you have for her. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like. I have no idea. Fully open to the possibility that God may take my child somewhere different than he took me or Dina. So Lord, what would you have for her? And as we began to pray, 
It wasn't that a light went on or something was shown to us that, you know, this is the ultimate plan that I have for your daughter. Please take notes, you know. It was day by day, moment by moment, prayer by prayer as we continued to walk through this process. And as we were praying, one of the very first things that the Lord laid on our hearts was the manner in which she was to be educated. Were we going to homeschool? Were we going to send her to private school? Or were we going to send her to public school? And we believed that God was leading us to send her to a place where she could continue to grow in her Christian faith, also continue to be equipped for the plan and purposes that God had for her, and also to be able to see the body of Christ from a larger perspective. And so the Lord led us to private schooling. Now, anyone who knows us back then, we didn't have any money. We were absolutely broke. And now the Lord's saying, I want you to send her to private school. And this is how much it's going to be per year. Really, Lord? (laughs) How's that going to happen? I guess I'm going back to McDonald's and becoming that fry guy. But do you know that once we took that step out in faith, God provided every single penny that we ever needed. And when she went through preschool and when she went through kindergarten, then it was time to come to the education at elementary school. We didn't know how we were going to pay for it because there was a huge jump in tuition. They hired my, my wife as a teacher, cut her tuition in half so she could continue on in the school. And we saw her grow over the years. First, second, third, fourth grade. We continue praying, Lord, what do you have for her? What would you want for her? And so on and so forth. He kept opening doors. He kept, then he closed some doors. Then he opened some more doors. And finally, all of a sudden, she was graduating. And we are now looking at the next step of life. And we began to pray again. And you know what God did? He opened the doors again and got her into a, a good school a, and a, positioned it in a way that it was affordable once again and made it possible for her to go. The reason I am bringing this all up today is because I want you to understand that in our parenting process, it is not simply bringing them to saving faith in Jesus Christ as the ultimate goal. Once they get there, it's now a discipleship process that also takes into consideration their long-term potential in God and whatever I can do as a parent to help bring that about. And Dean and I, we did not go to college right out after uh, high school. We did not have those opportunities that she had. But God may be doing a work in her differently than in us. And we saw that if God had give, has given her this potential, if God has given your child a certain potential for his kingdom, for his glory, you should try to encourage that all you can. And allow God to do what you desire, or He desires to do in and through your child. And it all begins at home. It all begins at home, making the right decisions as parents. And sometimes those decisions are difficult because you have to say no. You have to close a door. But I want to do this. I want to go there. I want to. No. This is not what the Lord would have. And you have to be prayerfully considering that because that's a big battle to fight, but it is a battle that we fought often. 
And then Autumn started looking back and she started saying, you guys were right. Well, honey, we're only right because we, we were praying through it. You know, she was accepted to two very good colleges and one of them was Wheaton College. And we prayed through it because it looks great on a resume. But God closed the door. And I'm so glad he did because he's opening brand new ones in this other place. It's a difficult walk with your kids. They made the one decision they could. We're going to protect our son. I don't know what God's going to do with them long term, but I know God's going to use them long term. But what can I do right now? Right now, what I can do is I can hide him. I can do this. I can keep him safe as long as I can, even if it means my particular life will be laid down for his. I like what one wrote, John Wolvert, he says, Though godly parents cannot pass on their faith as they do other family traits, they can certainly create an atmosphere of faith at home and be examples to their children. A home should be the first school of faith for our child. Listen to this verse from Deuteronomy and tell me if that statement doesn't fit perfectly with what God says. He says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. A verse that parents hold up all the time is a verse that Dean and I relied on greatly in our parenting of our child. It was Proverbs 22.6, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. There are many who have placed many different ideas upon what it means to train up a child and what it means to not depart from it. Is this simply moral direction? Is it vocational direction? Or are we talking soteriology, the salvation of an individual? We can do nothing to save our children, can we? We can pray for them. We can ask God to do it because it's a work that God does in their life. I do not believe this verse is speaking of salvation, but it is speaking of that methodology in which God would have you approach the raising of your child in the sight of faith in him. Meaning that it takes into consideration that there is already the realization that God is real and that we should follow him. When the word train is talked about normally in parenting circles or in parenting books, it is usually confined to two statements that I believe are insufficient in and of themselves to describe the word. Train up, they, also, they often just say, means to be a good example and to teach them the word of God. Yes, that is true, but it is incomplete. The word in the Hebrew is hanak that is used for the word train there. And when you look at the usage of the word hanak in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, it means that it is a moment of dedication. 
It is used hanak in the dedication of, the, of a house or hanak in the dedication of a temple. Hanak in the dedication of the walls around Jerusalem. Hanak when it comes to the dedication of an altar. It means setting your son or daughter aside to train them up for the purposes of the Lord. Seeing the long term in, in mind. Not just the moment, but the long term. Understanding that the child is not there for merely your amusement, your pleasure, your, uh, your you know, um, well-being, etc. But God has placed that child in your care for the purposes of himself. Also encompassed in that word train means a point of starting. It means the mouth of a river. You know, when you come and you're in a boat and you're on the sea and you see the mouth of a river, it's very wide and then it begins to narrow. It has that same notation to it. You are pointing them in a direction. You are narrowing their path. You are giving them a straight line, the best line to the purpose in which God has called them to. And that's exactly what I see within this verse. Jesus was a carpenter, why? Joseph was. His dad was. And the child was then trained by the father, right? And inherited the carpeting business and so forth. It is the same principle here, but it is used in the sense of, I believe, not only moral direction, but also direction in the purpose in which the child should go in their relationship and walk with the Lord and in ultimately their service to the Lord. One wrote this, he says, the word sometimes used in a sense of to start. Child training involves a narrowing a child's conduct away from evil and towards godliness and starting him in the right direction. Gleason Archer, one of the great linguistics of our particular time, he says it means this, to give to God. That's what this word train, he says, means. To set up something for divine service. He suggests that verse 6, this gives us the full range of the possible meaning. Dedicate the child to God. Prepare the child for his future responsibilities. Exercise or train the child for adulthood. That's the own game. That's the overall objective to it all. And decisions we make from the time they're one, two, three, you know, all lead into that final objective that often we don't consider. We are merely trying to survive the moment in in so many cases rather than looking to fight the battle now and reaping the consequences of that later. We appease now and we create for ourselves further consequence later. How many of us have been there? Raise your hand. Come on. We're all obvious. We've all done that, right? Instead of dealing with something early, we waited and waited and waited and prolonged and prolonged, and finally, it was a bigger mess when it was all said and done. I bring this to your attention today because if the Lord tarries, and our children who are growing up right now have to endure the world, how difficult will that be for them? Are they ready to do so? Are they ready to face the challenges that they're going to have to face? Will they one day be in that position? Oh, it's just so hard for me to even say. 
of thinking that the state has control over the life of your child. Think about that for a moment. Parenting is a huge responsibility. And I want to encourage all of you today to, I don't care what stage you are with your child, continue to have that long-term goal in mind. Continue praying, seeking God. And the moments they give you, maybe as young children, you're going to have to be more assertive. And yes, they're going to have to hear the word no once in a while. And yes, they're going to not like it once in a while. And yes, they're going to have a meltdown and roll around on the floor thinking, you know, you're going to need an exorcism. Uh, It's something they'll get through. But you're fighting the battle now to reap the reward later. Too many parents are foregoing these early stages and we are reaping the consequences of it. My wife as a preschool teacher will tell you if you ask her that she has parents coming to her preschool instructing her not to correct their children because it's a negative uh, instruction. We have been told three or four times not to say no to a child. This is the way the parents are thinking today. And folks, I'm telling you, we're going in the wrong direction. But these individuals in our text this morning, by faith, were willing to do what they needed to do because they saw, first and foremost, that God had a plan for their son. And if our sons and daughters are followers of Jesus Christ, he has a plan for them also. And they were not afraid of the king's edict, but they were willing to forego it to do what was right at the moment, even if it meant the sacrifice of their own life. This morning I want to bring this to your attention because we live in a trying world. I have to tell you that this thing with Alfie Evans, I don't know if I'll ever get past this. I can't fathom what those parents went through as they watched their child suffer for four days without water and oxygen not knowing what was wrong with him, not knowing what was happening. Somebody else in complete control. And even when there was a lifeboat available to them, the state said no. How is that possible? We have a big job as parents, don't we? And I pray that our children will trust the Lord and use Him as their guide in the turbulent world in which we live. And they're going to have to do so by faith. 